0: Before we get started, we'd like, as usual, to thank our Patreon supporters and remind listeners that, as a nonprofit, we rely on your help to keep making Big Biology.
1: To support us, please consider making a monthly donation through our Patreon page at patreon.com bigbio. You can also make a one-time contribution at bigbiology.org.
0: Another way to help us is to recommend Big Biology to a friend or family member, or to spread the word on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We want to share these ideas with as many people as possible and growing our audience will ensure that Big Biology episodes keep coming.
1: It also helps if you subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast and to comment on and rate the show.
0: And of course, if you want to hear a particular guest or an episode on your favorite topic or to get Marty to dance on TikTok, let us know. You can get in touch with us on our social media pages or through our website. And now, here's the show. <laughs>
1: To put it a bit crassly, we humans are just large body primates with exalted ideas about love,
0: and war. Who also are equipped with pretty sophisticated mechanisms for maintaining high and constant body temperatures. In nerdspeak, we are homeothermic endotherms.
1: Which also renders us poorly equipped to understand the lives of most of the species on our planet, who neither ponder love, nor war, nor maintain constant body temperatures.
0: Those other species are poikilothermic ectotherms, whose body temperatures are set much more by environmental circumstance than by their own metabolic heat.
1: For these species, which include include most insects, fish, reptiles, amphibians, and marine invertebrates, the pace of life is set by their body temperature. And they often experience lots of variation in ambient temperature, meaning that sometimes things go fast, and other times they go
0: slow. Okay, big idea. How the pace of life changes with temperature is a trait that, like any other trait, is subject to evolution.
1: And not surprisingly, we see lots of diversity in thermal sensitivity. Some species perform best at low temperatures and others at high temperatures.
0: Likewise, some species have narrow temperature ranges over which they perform best, and others have broad ranges.
1: Understanding how the evolution of these thermal traits is shaped by the environments that species experience has become a major focus for biologists in the past several decades.
0: In this episode, we chat with Martha Munoz from the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at Yale University about the evolution of thermal traits. Martha works on tropical lizards in the genus Anolis.
1: We talk with Martha about two major factors that influence how thermal physiology evolves in lizards and other ectotherms. The first is how environments vary across latitudes and elevations.
0: Tropical climates generally don't change much throughout the year, at least relative to temperate habitats. That's why Arts
1: Closet up in Montana contains a wider variety of clothing options than mine does down here in Tampa. Uh,
0: that and my great sense of style. Yeah. Anyway, species that live in
1: stable habitats tend to be less able to handle change. They thrive in narrow windows of conditions.
0: By contrast, species that live in temperate habitats, with hot summers and cold winters, tend to evolve traits that allow them to cope with diverse conditions. These traits include performing well across a broad range of body temperatures and the ability to detect and get away from bad conditions.
1: So what happens in tropical mountain ranges? This question was asked famously by Dan Jansen in a 1967 paper. In it, he asserted that, from the perspective of ectotherms, mountain passes are higher in the tropics than they are anywhere else on
0: Earth. What he meant was that because lowland tropical ectotherms have narrow thermal performance curves, it's really hard for them to go up and over cold mountain passes. In turn, this means that tropical mountains are more effective barriers to dispersal, which may contribute to high rates of speciation in the tropics.
2: If those organisms in the tropics are more physiologically specialized to the specific elevational band that they occupy, then movement across elevational bands should be much more challenging um, from the physiological perspective, right? Because it would expose organisms to environmental conditions outside their acceptable range. And in this sense, the barriers to dispersal across elevation should be steeper, aka higher, in the tropics than in the temperate zone.
1: The second major factor that we discuss with Martha is the Bogert effect.
0: This effect is named after Charles Bogert, who in the 1940s was among the first to realize that how organisms use behavior to thermoregulate could profoundly affect how their thermal physiology evolves.
1: In particular, Bogert proposed that ectotherms that do a good job thermoregulating may avoid the brunt of selection during climatic extremes or when average conditions change over long periods of time.
0: That is, good thermoregulators may evolve more slowly than poor thermoregulators. I'm Marty Martin. You know, you're supposed to say, and I'm Art Woods.
1: <laughs> I'm Art Woods. And I'm Marty Martin. And this is the April Fool's edition of Big Biology. Nice.
0: Well, Martha, thanks so much for joining us on the show. It's uh, really great to have you on. I've seen your start in biology sort of very early on in SickBee and it's just great how things have gone for you and um, just a, a fantastic trajectory in your, your career. And we're going to unpack a bunch of that today. We want to start just by uh, asking about your path into science. Like how, how did you get going in biology and how did you arrive at the, the set of topics that you're working on now?
2: That's a great question. Uh, My pathway to biology has been somewhat circuitous. I didn't know I was going to be a scientist. I grew up in New York City. And I really didn't have exposure to scientists. I knew since a young age, I was obsessed with nature and with animals and the outlets for that were the American museum of natural history, the Bronx zoo, the Queens botanical garden, any place where I could go and explore. And those are really, really important for me, but I felt a very strong longing to see nature in its place, to see organisms in their natural context. And I thought, um, based on what I knew of the careers that I could access, that the way that I could fuel that passion and fulfill it would be to become a wildlife vet. And I think actually I've met quite a few biologists who started out with a similar story, who thought they would go into veterinary science. So, you know, as many 18-year-olds do, I was 100% certain of where I was going in life. You know? <laughs> and then I got to college, and within my first week, that got completely disrupted and thrown upside down. And it happened very, very quickly. So my first day of undergraduate, I was uh, taking introductory biology, and there I was, you know, three rows in or something. And the person lecturing was Chris Schneider, a, a NOLIS biologist, someone who would later become my thesis mentor, my senior thesis mentor and an incredibly important figure in my career development, a really important mentor. And he was talking about the Cambrian explosion. And I mean, quite frankly, it, it blew my mind. Imagine going 18 years, not knowing that opabinia existed or that <laughs> existed and suddenly how much your world expands because they did exist. So I was, I mean, it was so emotional to have my world grow so quickly and by so much that I was moved to tears, and I sort of decided right then and there that I wanted to study evolution in some shape or fashion, whatever that was. Simultaneously, I was a work-study student, and I was in the lab of a young, female, first-generation American scientist, Dr. Ayako Yamaguchi, who's now at the University of Utah. And I started doing research just under work study because, quite frankly, I needed the cash. But she saw in me, I guess, an interest in figuring things out. And we started working on a project in which I was sort of discovering the vocal development of song trills in Xenopus frogs. And this is something I mean, we know what the trills look like in adults, but we know far less about how those songs develop in males and females as juveniles. And we actually got it to work. We made recordings, we extracted larynxes, and we sort of discovered the neurophysiology of song production in these froglets, and it was paradigm shifting for me. Suddenly, the things in textbooks didn't just become, you know, these things already written in stone, right? in some ways they're palimpsests, right? They can be sort of effaced and overwritten with new data. And we are the ones that can write that new data. We can write the new story on there. And that hit me kind of all at once. So it was a very impactful first couple of weeks of undergrad. And I decided I was going to become a biologist right then and there.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Wow. That does sound epic. That's amazing. I didn't have quite as compacted a the trajectory in the first couple of weeks of undergrad. But I you know, I, I had a similar experience in terms of being just super heavily influenced by early advisors. So so I, I went to university to do something else besides biology and and ended up not, not liking it very much and sort of stumbling around for a year or two before I I really fell into biology. But by chance, I had my undergraduate advisor was Carol Boggs. And I ended up approaching her at one point and saying, you know, hey, I'm like really into this. Could I do a a senior honors thesis with you? This is like, I think in my junior year. And that's what really got me going on insect biology. Like, if it hadn't been for her, I, I wouldn't, I probably wouldn't be doing insects. So just amazing how those early influences kind of affect so profoundly the trajectory that you take through science.
2: It's so interesting you say that. Um, You're sort of highlighting the point that I'm circling around, which is that early relatable role models can make really long-lasting positive influences on a person's career. So for me, the fact that Ayako was someone I could more directly relate to made the idea of becoming a scientist or being a professor leading a lab feel relatable because you know, my family is first generation American as well from Cuba. I'm female and I kind—I saw myself a little bit in her and she really encouraged me to, to see myself as a scientist. And then as a, a small aside, I was at a herpetology event a few nights ago, led by John Mares, um, in which high school students throughout the U.S. are introduced to working herpetologists. And one of the questions was, what got you into herpetology? and I was frankly afraid to disappoint with my answer because if in a Gouldian sense, if you reround the tape of my life and just happenstance, you know, contingent historical contingency, I had been exposed to a similarly wonderful mentor, you know, as Chris Schneider was, but who worked in a different field. I might be an ornithologist or I might be working <laughs> with mammals or insects as you do, Art. So very, very important to acknowledge how role models can sort of really guide a young investigator's career.
1: So Martha, we, we promise we want to talk about Bogart and Janston and all of that, but um, I'm interested to hear a lot of graduate students and soon to be graduate students, postdocs listen to our show. One of the most difficult things to do is to make that transition from being the undergraduate where you're just getting your feet wet with research. And oftentimes it's fairly obvious that the leader of the lab has an idea of what your project would be, and it's not necessarily given to you, but it's something like that. And then you kind of get into graduate school and it's more of, you know, now it's your turn. What are, what are the cool ideas? How are you going to do that? How about some statistics? How do you think about that or what were your experiences how did you navigate that what do you talk to your trainees to crack that nut
2: wow that's a really good question so i would say that my praxis is guided by the experiences that i had in grad school so what you describe i think is the story for many if not most of us right we are in some senses relatively led you know early on so that we can sort of see the you know the wizard behind the curtain so to speak of how science is made you know And then once you know how the sausage is made now you're in graduate school and really the goal is to become an independent scholar so really now the challenge becomes taking what you've learned and building your own ideas and and testing them and i found this personally to be one of the biggest hurdles of graduate school and the reason is that um, i was very afraid of failure very afraid. And we all are, right? I didn't want to disappoint my advisor. I didn't want to disappoint my committee. And I was very scared to step outside of the things I already knew quite well, because then the perceived chance of failure felt higher. And it took me some time to sort of get over that. Uh, Great mentorship helped. Jonathan uh, Lasos, who is my PhD advisor, is incredibly supportive and incredibly generous um, with his ideas and his time and his kindness, um, and empathy. Uh, but really, I mean, everything he said, he was saying all the right things, you know, you have to feel confident to put yourself out there, failure or whatever, you know, you perceive to be failure is part of the process and part of the growth. And I just had to go through it, you know, and he was there to support me through it. And that's something that I try to bring to my students. The goal is the same. I want them to be independent, critical thinkers. Uh, and how we get there is really different. I've discovered between students. Some students lean into the challenge sooner and faster. Other students need a gentler hand and for you to step back and let them go through their process. But in either case, I just try to give them the support that the specific person needs in order to get there because that's what I needed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: great. well let's let's get into the biology by. Maybe let's let's first start talking about Dan Jansen. Um, so a significant chunk of your work has focused on what we in biology call Jansen's hypothesis, that comes out of this famous paper that he wrote about why mountain passes are higher in the tropics. So who who was Dan Jansen, and what is this important hypothesis that he articulated?
2: So Dan Janssen is a very well-respected tropical ecologist whose career has largely centered out of the University of Pennsylvania, and he's known for many important contributions to the field. Uh, but the one that, as you mentioned, is most uh, salient for the research I do would be his 1967 paper, Why Tropical Mountains Are Higher in the Tropics. And the origin of this story is another one of those cases of biological happenstance. So back in the 1960s, when the Organization for Tropical Studies was sort of getting off the ground, um, Dan Jansen was one of the early instructors there. And he. this was in Costa Rica. And what they did was visit different sites across different elevations in Costa Rica. And he noticed that the Ticos, the Costa Ricans, um, whenever they went from If they had been from a higher elevation and they were now at a field site at a lower elevation, they were sweating more. He noticed this. I mean, it was Hmm. that simple, right? We're endotherms ultimately, right?
0: (laughs) Most of the time, yeah.
2: (laughs) And then he said, well, why are why, why am I not? And why are the North Americans not doing so? And with a few of these observations, it started to click to him that it was because those individuals from Costa Rica who were, had been born and grew up at a relatively high elevation site had basically been exposed their entire lives to a relatively homogenous set of temperatures, because that's how temperature is structured in tropical mountains, right? There's a lot of Climatic zonation across elevation and seasons. And so it was physiologically disruptive, right, for this person to now experience a set of thermal conditions well outside the accustomed range. Whereas if you're from Colorado or a temperate area going across elevation and across seasons, you'll experience quite a lot of the same temperatures. And so experiencing a warm day in the cool season or a very cool day in a warm season. This is all within the realm of natural variation. And so folks who grow up in a more seasonal environment are less specialized to that environment. And so he the, really here was the intuition of translating why the observation happened to a framework for, the, for predicting the physiological tolerances And dispersal capacities of tropical versus temperate organisms. And it's a complex and elegant framework with lots of different possible ramifications. Can
1: we talk a little bit about those ramifications? You know, there's a lot going on here. So in the temperate zone, there's more of a blending of climates across altitudes. So at any altitude, it's reasonably likely that you're going to see conditions that you could see at some other altitude on a mountain in say Colorado. But then in the tropics and my experiences in Panama, yeah, it was, it was stark the first time when you're at high elevation, those are really, really different places all the time compared to lower elevation, just as you're talking about. So there's sort of these more static bands in those places. So what are the big things, what are the big patterns biologically in terms of diversity or in general that we care about?
2: Yeah, so... Jansen's hypothesis sets up a couple of predictions translating how that environmental heterogeneity or lack thereof translates into physiological patterns and dispersal. So in the tropics, those uh, that much more homogenous thermal variation should translate into narrower thermal tolerances. That is, for example, the suitable thermal range for activity, the difference between the upper critical limit of locomotion and the lower critical limit of locomotion. Jansen's po- uh, postulates that that should be narrower for tropical organisms at a given elevation than for their counterparts, for example, found in temperate environments. And there's been lots of studies examining this specific prediction of Jansen's hypothesis, and that often holds up. It often holds up quite well. There are some pretty interesting exceptions, and I think that's actually where my work comes in, is sort of a system in which that I worked on that in which I didn't observe that at all. And I thought that was actually kind of interesting because it provides a like a, a nuance to those predictions. Okay, so continuing with that, now here's the prediction that, because it's a series of predictions actually, and if you follow them through, you eventually get to diversity. So, okay, so the next prediction is that If those organisms in the tropics are more physiologically specialized to the specific elevational band that they occupy, then movement across elevational bands should be much more challenging um, from the physiological perspective, right? Because it would expose organisms to environmental conditions outside their acceptable range. And in this sense, the barriers to dispersal across elevation should be steeper, aka higher, in the tropics than in the temperate zone. As a corollary of that, if we can imagine that dispersal rates across elevation are reduced, then correspondingly, we would also predict more limited gene flow across elevation, steeper population structuring, and when translated over longer time periods, therefore, greater potential for speciation in tropical mountains than in their temperate counterparts.
1: And is this a pattern, and we're going to spend a lot of time today talking about Anolus lizards. but this holds for plants, this holds for birds, this holds for butterflies. I mean it's taxon independent or are there any rule breakers as it were? Beyond beyond some of the things we'll get into with the noles, but who doesn't play the right game or who doesn't play the the general and game? Maybe
0: ectotherms versus endotherms too would be interesting.
2: I mean, I don't think there are differences that are structured phylogenetically. That is to say that I don't think it's universally the case that one type of organism will always necessarily follow Janssen's hypothesis and others will necessarily break it. It's more the case that in ectotherms, lineages that thermal regulate have the potential to sort of, I'm gonna state more simply here and we can probe in more deeply, but simply one of the ways in which organisms can disrupt the predictions under Jansen's hypothesis is through their behavior. And their behavior, it turns out, allows them to sort of dictate the environmental conditions that they occupy and in some ways flatten or reduce the steepness of the, those barriers to dispersal.
0: Let's let's dig into that in a few minutes when we really start talking about uh, your work on anoles. Um, I did want to ask, so, so it seems like a key component here is is dispersal. And the argument is that because of these steep gradients and structured gradient uh, environments in the tropics, that there's less dispersal. So if you do direct observations of dispersal in organisms in the tropics versus the temperate zone, or look at you know, patterns of genetic variation. Is there actually evidence for less less dispersal in the tropics?
2: Oh, yeah, there is. There's actually this beautiful study led by Pilato Gill Shaw et al. in 2018, that sort of puts all the pieces of Jansen's hypothesis together in a really elegant way. So this is a study of tropical insects and, and temperate insects, uh, aquatic insects, uh, several lineages, lineages of them, in fact. And what the authors did was first sort of as I Proof of concept demonstrate that the environmental patterns of temperature across elevation in uh, I believe it was Ecuador and in Colorado match the predictions under Jansen's hypothesis that with elevation you know there's more zonation in tropical environments than in the temperate zone. They made a very they made that very clear. They got the data for it. It's it's elegant. Then focusing on all these lineages of insects they got the genetic data necessary to actually address that prediction. And indeed, rates of inferred dispersal are lower, population structuring is higher, and estimated rates of speciation are also higher in those tropical lineages. And the beauty of that study is that it's in many ways like a very apples-to-apples comparison. It's the same lineages of insects, they occupy very similar habitats, and really it's the environmental heterogeneity. right? So they've controlled for phylogenetic effects, they control for so many things, and that really allowed them to home in on and test that core prediction and indeed it it really does hold up
0: yeah uh, that's super cool one of my um former postdocs alicia shaw was involved in that that project so i got to hear a lot about that that paper and it's super impressive
1: so we yeah to move on in a minute to to Bogert, but my bird bias my mammal bias i gotta ask um art mentioned the endotherm maybe we'll, we'll bring in other taxa not to be uh exclusively vertebrate how does size or you know you, you talked about dispersal as which is a just nice example of dispersal being limited and populations being more structured but birds fly and big things by their nature just move more so not to mention the thermal environment has very different impacts on big versus little organisms are are there i'll go back to my rule breakers sort of things do these patterns hold for birds do they hold more for small animals than big irrespective of ectoendotherm do we know
2: well I would say it would be interesting to get more data, perhaps in the manner that Pilato et al. did and do those, you know, apples to apples comparisons across systems. And I think that would really answer the question you're asking. But in a general sense, yeah, I think if you can fly, you can... (laughs) (laughs) you can sort of bend and break the rules a bit there. (laughs) It helps. Um, Being big, I think, can help, especially if you're an endotherm. But if you're an ectotherm, you still have to contend with crossing that physiological barrier. Maybe the thermal inertia afforded by being larger can help with that. um, But I don't know if it can get around around the issue altogether.
1: Yeah, that's what's intriguing to me is there's some size at which ectotherms can break you know, that constraint.
2: Yeah. What about veranids? Yeah. Well, like, right, right? we oh, get... <laughs> there's some big ones
1: and some small ones, but probably you need veranids before you're getting closer to the size threshold. Can you tell us about these um, thermal performance curves that are so popular and important in your field?
2: Oh yeah. So in a general sense, for those of you who are unfamiliar with them. Imagine a lizard perched on a palm tree somewhere in the Caribbean. In order for that lizard to move around its habitat, it interacts with temperature in a pretty interesting way. The ability of that lizard to locomote around its environment is contingent on its body temperature, such that it's actually optimized over a relatively narrow range of temperatures and then decreases at higher and lower temperatures until the animal is immobilized. This curve has several important features. And because we'll be talking about those features, I think it's worth taking a second and just describing what those are. So that curve has limits, right? Temperatures above and below which locomotion literally ceases. We know these, at least in lizards, as the critical thermal minimum and the critical thermal maximum, those thermal limits to locomotion and the way that we experimentally gauge those, at least in lizards, is by systematically cooling and heating them and then flipping them onto their back and determining the temperature at which they <laughs> literally lose the ability to write themselves.
1: I love, that. every time I explain that to undergrads, they're like, you do what?
2: <laughs> they don't, turns out they're not fond of that and they want to immediately flip back over. <laughs> and those, those limits vary a lot among lizards. So just looking at CT-min and CT-max can tell you quite a bit about where the organisms can live and how they interact with the environments that they occupy. Then of course that curve has a maximum and it has a temperature at which performance is optimized. So the T-opt is basically the temperature at which performance hits its uh, apex. Then another important feature of thermal performance curves is that they're asymmetric, meaning that performance goes down more steeply at temperatures above the optimal temperature than below.
0: That was the best uh, non-visual explanation of thermal performance <laughs> curves I've ever heard.
1: I know, I know, that, that's fantastic. That that last thing about the fi- like the physical manifestation of it—you can maybe envision like a normal distribution or a, a bell curve and squish it in on one side. Right. That's that asymmetric part where the, the, the higher edge is more of an issue.
0: Let me ask a, a sort of mechanistic question about thermal performance curves, too. So you were talking about tropical ectotherms having narrower thermal performance curves, so a, a smaller distance between the upper limits and the lower limits. You know, presumably what they gain then is a performance advantage at the temperatures in, in between upper and lower thermal limits. So so this is a question about trade-offs in thermal performance curves and height versus breadth. So is there evidence that, that they do have a performance advantage at the optimal temperatures? And I guess the contrasting way of saying that is in temperate ectotherms that are exposed to really broad sets of environmental conditions, do they pay a cost for having a really broad thermal performance curve?
2: Wow. My knowledge of the size, structure, and shape of tropical versus temperate thermal performance curves in a manner that would allow me to sort of quantify the area under the curve. <laughs> <of it. laughs> like, all
0: right, all right. But... <laughs> we, we, we can let that go. But
2: I think, so to rephrase your question, the asymmetry of the thermal performance curve is actually relevant because it impacts whether and how organisms thermal regulate in a manner that does tend to differ in a general sense between temperate and tropical environments. So to take a step back, the the thermal performance curve is typically quite asymmetric. The performance decrement is steeper, typically, at temperatures above the optimal temperature and below the critical thermal maximum. So that range of temperatures where they can still move, but it's above their t-opt. And the performance decrement is shallower to the left of that, that is temperatures between t-opt and c-t-min. So put differently, mistakes, thermoregulatory mistakes, so to speak, are much more costly above T-Opt than they are below T-Opt. So this presents organisms with a bit of a conundrum, right? So if you're in a tropical environment, usually the the thermoregulatory priority is to avoid the heat. So the way that organisms often do this when they do thermoregulate is to sort of undershoot. And you'll often see in organisms from warm environments that the preferred temperature is a little bit below the optimal temperature. And so this suggests to me that thermal regulation is, uh, because of the asymmetry of the thermal performance curve, can be quite challenging in warm environments. By contrast, if you look at temperate ectotherms, they often are extremely good at thermal regulating. And in those situations, it's often the opposite situation where the environment is quite cold and the thermal regulatory priority is to warm up. And temperatures, especially towards the more northerly latitudes or southerly in the southern hemisphere, the risk of overheating through thermal regulation goes down. And often you'll find that they flirt much more closely with TPREF close to that TOPT, maybe even above it, in combination with other features, a pattern we know as counter gradient variation, where organisms in colder environments tend to be even more warm adapted than you might expect, in part, among other reasons, because the cost of thermal regulation are, are just lower.
1: So I've always been I mean a fan and sort of jealous to be honest about thermal performance curves because as a physiologist that A works with endotherms and so doesn't think too much about temperature but but B does think an enormous amount about performance when it comes to eating the right food when you go to a place you've never been or fighting parasites or infections of all different sorts. It doesn't seem that people have played played up that performance curve mentality, you know, nearly in such a rigorous and and straightforward, mathematizable way. Have you have you seen that very much or, or more broadly? I mean, how how do we think about other dimensions of environment with respect to Jansen's ideas? Do they transfer? You mentioned water relations at one point in one of your papers, but what are what are people thinking about there? How have people used performance curves in the context of Jansen's hypothesis? If they have.
0: If I can rephrase it, like, are there other factors besides temperature that are important here that we should be paying attention to?
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely moisture. Moisture is another important one, right? It's another variable that's uh, heterogeneously structured, depending at the scale at which you examine it. And certainly, even in dry skinned lizards, moisture is super important, right, for their energy balance, but it becomes even more salient for wet skinned organisms, for example, like amphibians. And in those cases, they really... Do a delicate dance between thermo and hydro regulation to ensure that uh, they stay wet. And in the case of even more extreme organisms like plethodontid, aka lungless salamanders, um, maintaining moisture on the skin is actually actually basically essential because they do their respiration through their skin.
0: What what about other factors besides water? Are there? I mean, is is, there, is this like a multifactorial thing? And you know, we need to be thinking about performance curves for all kinds of abiotic and biotic factors. Or is it mostly temperature and water?
2: Oxygen content is another really important one. Something that also definitely varies with elevation, right? Um, I think thermal performance curves are an incredibly important heuristic. But if we really want to get granular about it, we could start thinking about performance surfaces that consider, you know, multi-dimensional factors on emergent performance.
1: You said it with the big label biotic. Think it, somebody that works on disease. In principle, it seems fine, right, to think about different species as having performance curves about getting rid of the virus or staying away from the tick. But I've not really seen that used before. Is there some reason that biotic factors, biotic gradients, thermal I mean, not thermal, obviously, but performance curve wouldn't work.
2: So are you saying that, for example, parasite load might be an important covariate dictating performance?
1: Well, I'm saying that it could be described, uh, you you could ask about species' different propensities for performing with respect to controlling infections best, getting rid of them fastest, staying away from them, minimizing their costs, all of those kinds of things.
2: Totally. And, you know, there's actually quite a an in-depth literature on behavioral fever, in ectotherms. And the patterns are completely mishmash, right? There's no consistent trend that I could detect. But in general, there are some ectotherms that when sort of exposed to certain types of infection will move into thermal environments that are suboptimal for their performance, but raise their core temperature so as to effectively get rid of the parasites. And so performance is a multi-pronged challenge that should include and can and does include infection state.
1: Yeah, the behavioral thermal regulation when infected is so cool in in the tropics, you know, there are more parasites on on average, right? And so how does that play with the the constraints of the sort of thermal environments that they can live in? If, If you're not able to use temperature so much to get rid of the parasites. I mean, what are the ramifications? <laughs> it's another dimension of fitness to take into consideration.
2: So, I mean, just to add even more nuance and complication is that obviously the T-opt of the parasites is going to vary. And so in some ectotherms, you actually observe behavioral hypothermia in response to infection. So imagine being co-infected with parasites Uh, that have a t-op below and above yours. (laughs) What do you do?
0: (laughs) I'd like to get back to something you said a few minutes ago about the profound importance of behavior and the way that organisms can sort of construct their own thermal environments. And maybe let's talk about this in the context of Charles Bogert and what has now come to be called the Bogert effect. So tell us about Charles Bogert and what he said.
2: Oh, gosh, this is a very interesting story. So the backdrop here is that for a very long time, a surprisingly long time, uh, reptiles were thought to be consummate thermal conformers, effectively at the whim and mercy of the environment. This dates back certainly to the 19th century, and prior to that, there's, there's a long literature on this. And it took a surprising amount of time to shake this from the community. To put this into context, Charles Boger and Raymond Cowles made their seminal contributions to thermal biology in the early to mid 1940s less than a decade before we as a community discovered the structure of DNA. So I mean, just to think of, you know, how recent these ideas are. So Charles Bogart and Raymond Cowles were two very prominent uh, North American herpetologists, and they did this seminal study in the Coachella Valley in California, which coincidentally is the exact same place where the annual music festival is held. So I've, I'm, I'm tickled by that. So imagine going to Coachella in 1941 or 1942 or 43, it would have just been bogart and cows and the lizards <laughs>
0: <laughs> things have
2: changed and they went into this region and there was a lot of reptiles there are a lot of lizards and snakes and they did a very detailed series of natural history body and body temperature observations and far from correlating neatly with what was available in the environment uh, it was Pretty clear early on that body temperatures were pretty stable. And really the most distinguishing factor among species was deal activity, with diurnal species ex- of both lizards and snakes exhibiting higher core temperatures than their counterparts that were nocturnal. And it sort of bucked a long-standing view that desert reptiles were somehow supremely heat adapted. They were surprising those body temperatures were actually surprisingly cool. And of course, that they were in some sense, regulating their core temperature through behavior. Now, this study while super super influential was sort of conceptually limited by the fact that it was it took place in a single locality and while this provided a very intense and detailed look at thermal ecology it wasn't able to make inferences about thermal evolution and the that major leap actually occurred in a follow-up study that was written by Charles Boger and published in 1949 in one of the earliest issues of evolution this is really on the heels even of the society being formed I mean this was Imagine the first few pages of evolution, this paper came out. And for me, it's one of the most prescient papers of its generation. So in that paper, Charles did an explicit geographic comparison And so he compared populations of lizards in the same genus at sites in Arizona and at sites in Florida. Now these environments obviously differ quite a bit in their thermal habitat structure. So he reasoned that if thermal regulation wasn't occurring, their, their behavioral pattern should be quite different by contrast, if behavioral thermal regulation really is important and a, and a dominant feature of these organisms, then you might actually anticipate fewer differences between these sites. And that's exactly what he found. And then he had this really great great quote. Let me pull it up real fast. Okay. And this is really where the conceptual leap for me took place because he not only found that there this resulted in a similarity of body temperatures across geography, which is interesting in and of itself, but he... Embraced and rapidly appreciated the evolutionary implication of that. He said, Closely related forms, even though they are sometimes placed in separate genera, tend to have thermal preferences or normal activity ranges that are extraordinarily close despite their marked dissimilarities in habitat. This to me, implies at least some measure of evolutionary stasis or rigidity that's being driven by that behavioral homeostasis. And while the formalization of those ideas would not happen for another 50 years or so, I think he was already, I think his ideas were there. I think he was envisioning this capacity of behavior to sort of reduce environmental variation and dampen natural selection and limit evolution.
1: So he eventually had a, an effect named for him. And that was in a paper by by Ray Huey. Let's talk about that effect and let's get into how it's come into play in your own research.
2: Okay. So picture it. It's the 1950s and the 1960s and the 1970s. <laughs> Thermal ecology is in a heyday. Everybody's out in the field, <laughs> lassoing <laughs> lizards, measuring body temperatures and trying to determine whether the species they're examining exhibit physiological divergence across gradients or if they're the same. And this the collection of these empirical studies led to a conceptual debate about whether Bogert's ideas were generally true or not generally true, and whether physiological evolution in a general sense could be construed to be conserved or diverged. Now, these papers, uh, studies, were, were actually quite incredible, a very detailed thermal ecology, really elegant studies, but they emerged in either the pre-phylogenetic era or in the nascently post phylogenetic era
1: and and what is what is a phylogenetic era
2: what i mean by the phylogenetic era is basically the addition into our understanding of biology and in our experimental design the acknowledgement that species are not independent units for analysis and the relatedness among species must minimally be taken into account and essentially corrected for but alternatively the phylogeny itself is a medium through which the patterns we're interested in observing can manifest. And so the, phylogen- the phylogenetic distribution of the data is a source of information as well. And so the methods for properly contending with that were not quite up to the task of all of the, the great thermal ecology work that was happening. And so inferences about physiological lability or conservatism were correspondingly more qualitative than quantitative. And then the research continued, but I think it's really picked up again in the, new cent- in the new millennium, I think in part for two reasons. One, Ray Huey's paper, which I'll, I'll talk about. Um, and two, just that the phylogenetic toolkit has caught up with the data. So now the rubber can really start to hit the road. So anyway, this now this brings me to 2003. And Ray Huey, in collaboration with Paul Hertz and Barry Sinervo, wrote a really impactful paper conceptual paper taking Bogert's qualitative ideas and creating a quantitative hypothesis testing framework with which to put them to the test. If we take Bogert's argument at the broadest possible level, what the argument says is that when thermal re- when any kind of regulatory homeostatic behavior is at play, that has the capacity to reduce environmental variation across some environmental gradients and that that buffering should limit physiological divergence and or slow the rate of evolution. Ray Huey, and uh, so Ray and, and colleagues effectively just gave this a new name, the Bogert effect, and devised a series of, of approaches for testing it. And, and what they did was basically develop two premises that should be true under the Bogert effect. The first is that regulatory behavior is occurring. That while it seems quite obvious, is very complicated to actually demonstrate in the field. It requires understanding the environment that's available to organisms, so you need a null distribution of temperatures that organisms, if you're doing thermal regulation, that temperatures could, uh, that organisms could theoretically play with. Then you need to demonstrate that body temperatures are actually in a mean and range that is so separate from what's available in the environment that our metrics indicate that they're regulating to some extent they
0: must be doing something
2: they must be doing something and
0: and how do you get those null distributions
2: well in the case of (laughs) lizard it's very fun (laughs) there are many ways at the simplest level you could deploy a couple little i buttons but those actually do a, a relatively poor job of estimating actual lizard body temperatures because they lack size, shape, and volume, right? So what we typically do, we typically embed eye button sensors into some other device, the most fun of which are actually copper lizards. This is copper that has been electroformed into the size and shape of an actual lizard. And we use copper because it actually heats up and cools off at a rate comparable to lizards. Which was discovered through a series of really fun 1970s studies with george Bakken and gates and others and that's a whole other story of equally fun <laughs> equally fun to tell
1: <laughs> Can you? What, what were the other media that they used just out of curiosity we have to go into the details but what else was was it not topic? oh
2: i mean if we're gonna talk about it we got to go to the original to the og who would be jim heath in 1964 with the beer cans <laughs> <laughs> beer can lizard <laughs> so Let's go back to the early heyday of thermal ecology. Folks were basically in the early days, and this is you know, just describing a general limitation of what, how we knew how to do these studies. So this is not a criticism of what was done, right? We always improve on prior methods. But originally, the way we typically looked at thermal regulation or assessed it was to look at the, how body temperatures vary across a day and then look at the air temperatures during the same time period. And deviations in, you know, the slope of TB versus time, or TA versus time, or even deviations just comparing the slopes of TA and TB directly.
0: TB is body temperature. TA is air temperature.
2: Yes, to air temperature. So just comparing how body temperature varies um, over a given time period versus air temperature, and from those, from analysis of those variables, uh, whether or not thermal regulation is occurring. Then in 1964, Jim Heath devised an ingenious experiment over a single day. Of research that published in Science, and what he did. <laughs> so here's what he did: he grabbed 13 cans of beer. Why 13? I've always wondered this, okay? Because cases come in 12s. <laughs> Wherefore for the spare? I have. Oh, this has always bothered me. <laughs>
0: A baker's dozen of beer.
2: The <laughs> baker's dozen of beer. First, in the paper, he doesn't tell you what happened to the beer, but the cans were removed, of their, the beer was removed from the cans in some fashion. And then he just refilled them with water and he put them out <laughs> basically in the desert <laughs> over a day. And he measured air temperature and temperature inside of those vessels. And lo and behold, when you give something, you know, volume, size and shape, the temperatures are quite different, right? Than what's available in the air. And his point was that we needed to start thinking about how the different ways that organisms interact with temperature and their size, shape, and volume might impact the emergent body temperature that you observe. And so this was the original, I think, formulation of what we know now as the operative temperature, meaning the equilibrium temperature of an organism in the absence of behavioral thermoregulation or physiological control of body temperature. And for that to be accurate, we use models that sort of give us more of the size, shape, and volume of actual lizards. We still do calibrations and corrections with live lizards, but Heath's advance was to say that those factors mattered.
0: Yeah, and so that that seems really important for generating these null distributions, right? Because you're asking, how do these objects interact with their environments in the absence of the thing that you might actually care about, which is the behavior, right?
2: That's right and that is the null hypothesis approach that Ray Huey was proposing. I think he was uh, they were saying that really that regulation is the bur- requires the burden of proof. And so, for example, organisms can appear to engage in homeostatic behavior if their environments are already optimally warm, right? So you need to sort of demonstrate that organisms are thermoregulating beyond, you know, what's available in their environment. And so the null distribution tells you what the environment is and then you can compare that to observe body temperatures and through a series of uh, metrics, basically quantify the degree of thermal regulation that organisms are engaging in. And this is step one. So the second premise that should be true under the Bogart effect is that thermal regulation should be associated with limited physiological divergence or weaker selection on physiology. This gets hairier, there's more than one way to uh, get at this. Uh, In his paper, Ray described um, using another null model approach, which is essentially capitalizing on the thermal sensitivity of performance. If you can get thermal performance curves for your organisms, then if you know their body temperature in the field, you can predict what their sprint speed, for example, what a fitness-based metric like sprint speed would be. And when he applied this null model to anoles from Puerto Rico, he found that at high and low elevation, they were thermoregulating, and that the thermal regulation put their core temperatures within a range that optimized performance in both environments. At low elevation, the absence of thermal regulation would have made their body temperatures too hot and influenced per- performance in that way. And at high elevation, the environment was too cold. And so performance would have decreased because of that. So I guess what I'm saying here is that the thermal challenges were different at both high and low elevation. Those lizards thermoregulated to the same body temperature, uh, very close to the same body temperature, and effectively flattened any divergence in thermal physiology across elevation.
0: I think that's a great segue into talking about your work on lizards and, and sort of addressing in a broader phylogenetic and physiological context, um, the roles that the Bogart effect plays on on evolutionary divergence and thermal physiology. So, so can you tell us about the anoles that you've worked on, the, the sort of set of species, and where in the world this is this has been happening?
2: Oh, totally. Yeah. So I've been working on anolis lizards since uh, my undergraduate thesis when I started working with Chris Schneider and anolis marmoratus to return to you know the world's best anole, and then I started. <laughs> It really is. It's also a thermal conformer, so I didn't study it for my dissertation. <laughs> <laughs> Instead, I I went to the Dominican Republic and and really cut my teeth with the knolls there. And I was deeply inspired by Ray's paper and it became the foundation for the sort of my approach to the field work that eventually led to some of the the work you're describing so one phrase from this paper with ray huey and colleagues really stuck with me and he said that under the bogart effect the response to selection will be less than expected slowing rates of evolution under natural conditions now their paper was inherently microevolutionary. That was the scale of focus of their work, but that is a macroevolutionary statement, right? They are now translating the day-to-day behaviors of organisms into what the signature of that should be over deeper evolutionary time. And that really stuck with me and got me thinking about whether regulatory capacities would vary among organisms or rather buffering could be more effective for some traits than others. And if that's true, then this may lead to rate heterogeneity either across the phenotype or certainly across lineages. And so that's really where the conceptual framework for my work uh, got started. And it really began by reading other papers of Ray from his early work in Hispaniola, the Caribbean island comprised of the Dominican Republic in the East and Haiti in the West. And he did some early work with Paul Hertz in the 1980s examining thermal regulation in some Hispaniolan anoles across elevation. And from that work, which was only a few populations, it was pretty clear that the trunk ground anoles, these brown lizards that occupy tree trunks and boulders, the lower meter and a half, Of the substrate, this is a very specific type of anole, seemed to thermoregulate quite a bit. And so my first expedition to the Dominican Republic was to follow up on that. And I spent about six weeks just watching lizards, watching their thermoregulatory patterns, comparing it across populations and trying to get a sense for how much this varied across populations of the same species and across species. And that that's where it all got started.
0: And, and the contrast is with anoles that live elsewhere on the landscape, so like higher up in the trees, and they do a relatively poor job of thermoregulating. Is that is that the pattern?
2: Well, at the time, there just really weren't data on other types of anoles. Hispaniola has about 41 species of anole, um, and the majority of what we know about thermoregulatory behavior even today, is biased to certain types of anoles on the islands, the ones that you can more readily access because they're more abundant and they're more visible. We do have more data now on thermoregulatory behavior in more species of Hispaniolan anoles, but even then, our data are incomplete. Lots of species are super cryptic. Crown giants are so high in the canopy, it's very hard to get behavioral estimates from them. So yeah, it's it gets complicated.
0: But, but just to sort of anticipate where you're going, I think you're saying that you know, there are some species that are going to be really good thermoregulators and other species and other groups that are not, and that we expect different rates of thermal evolution within, within those groups. And so you need, you need the contrast with the ones that are not thermoregulating well. So, so who are those?
2: Let me take one step back here to say that you've hit on a really important point, which is that I think any good study of the Bogart effect is by nature comparative. So it's really hard when you have a certain, you know, one lineage that does one thing and you get one answer. It's really hard to me- say what that means in light of the Bogart effect without a contrasting example. To your point, however, yes, annoles mm-hmm. definitely vary in their in how much they engage with thermal regulatory behavior, and the inference is that rates of physiological evolution should be faster in anoles or any ectotherm that doesn't thermoregulate or does so to only a limited extent when compared to organisms that do engage in regulatory behaviors.
0: And that, I mean, and just to push that one more level and then I'll be quiet and Marty can talk. So so why would some lineages be better thermoregulators and other lineages be, be poorer? Thermoregulators? Like, what, what drives that?
2: That's an excellent question. And it is another multi pronged answer. In general, there could be lineage specific effects, but I think the more salient features are effectively how temperature is structured across the environment.
0: I see. So some have the opportunity and some don't.
2: Yes, exactly. Yes. Or or the costs, the opportunities are so low that the costs sort of exceed the benefits. So in, for example, closed canopied forests, the environment is often a surprisingly cool and two, super thermally homogenous, right? Limited sunshade patches. This means that transit distances between sun and shade are, are very large and this increases the cost of thermal regulation. And so you often observe that organisms in closed canopy habitats are much poorer thermal regulators than organisms in, co- in less costly environments like forest edges, where you get like much more structuring in hot and cool patches. Likewise, um, thermoregul- the decision to thermoregulate or not reflects a trade-off between its inherent benefits, for example, a performance boost counterbalanced against its costs not just environmental heterogeneity and distance between patches, but also the presence of pred- predators and competitors. So in situations where organisms uh, are in more saturated communities or have uh, greater predation risk, you might also predict that engagement in regulatory behaviors is correspondingly lower.
0: Yeah, because movement is dangerous, right? It makes you apparent to the predators. Right, right. Okay. So
1: let's put this in the more evolutionary context. You know, I just think the system and and everything we've been talking about is so fascinating. It's it's just absolutely wonderful, Martha. The basic idea to get to where my question is going is that the the species that are or the the lineages that are thermoregulating, they're behaviorally buffering themselves, such that they are evolving differently or slower in your papers. And so far, we just keep talking about this, or you just keep talking about this word evolution. Do you mean adaptation or do you mean, do you really mean evolution? And is there an important distinction? Like how careful are you being about that word choice when you say the broader evolution as opposed to adaptation? Because it seems like we're talking about the mechanics of adaptation.
2: Yeah, I think I've been trained to be very careful about the context in which I deploy the word adaptation. (laughs) Adaptation is a special case of evolution, but not all evolution is adaptive. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So is there, is there evidence of non-adaptive evolution or? Sure.
2: Maladaptation happens right. in, your, in your system. Oh no! Yeah, sure.
1: <laughs> but in your system, how are you thinking about the diversity of evolutionary outcomes? Because you're talking about rates of evolution, but those rates aren't arbitrary. They're about these traits that have something to do with thermal performance, which is about adaptation. So, how should we put all that together? Is there some cool other ways that evolution might be happening that's influencing what's going on with these lineages? That's not adaptation.
2: So even though I'm very careful in a general sense about using adaptation, I think what we're studying in some ways is adaptive evolution. And the way that I do that is typically through a macroevolutionary lens. So to give you an example, my typical approach might be to collect heat and cold tolerance data for a wide variety of organisms, and then fit a series of evolutionary models to the trait data to determine whether the lineages engaging in regulatory behavior differ in the rate and pattern from other organisms. And the way that we test that is essentially by fitting a series of evolutionary models to the trait data. A subset of those models that we fit are adaptive evolution, or also known as ornstein uhlenbeck models. These models assume the presence of one or more evolutionary optima for the phenotype of a given trait. So, an optimum for CT max, uh, an evolutionary optimum for CT min. And when we fit the model, we do it in a couple of ways. First, we see what the fit of the model is, assuming that the adaptive optimum for all species is exactly the same. Then we we can fit other models that allow the location of that adaptive optimum to vary based on thermoregulatory capacity. Then we compare the fit of those models. And so what we often observe, or actually this is, Pretty repeatable in the studies, in the systems that I've worked on, is that when organisms differ in their thermoregulatory capacities, a two peak model is typically favored over a single peak model, meaning that the adaptive optimum for the emergent physiological traits that we examine differ. They're different adaptive peaks. And the way that they access those different adaptive peaks seems to be driven by whether or not they engage in regulatory behavior. So it has a lot of explanatory power for the adaptive evolution of physiological traits.
0: I want to ask just one, maybe final, quantitative question about your lizard work, and that is, um, how much, like, if you have to put a number on it, how much faster do the non-thermoregulating species evolve than the thermoregulating ones?
2: Uh huh. <laughs> I think the answer to that is that there's no consistent answer.
0: Sounds like biology.
2: It, truly, and that pleasantly for me, the devil is in the details, right? Because if it were always the same answer. (laughs) We might be done already, but it differs. So for example, I've discovered that lizards from tropical islands tend to thermoregulate more than than lizards from the Latin American mainland. We can discuss that if we like and the reasons for that. And we discovered that the rate of heat tolerance evolution is about three and a half times slower on islands than on the mainland. That magnitude difference, differs. It's going to differ depending on how steep the costs vary between environments, right? Because that's going to dictate how different behaviorally organisms are. It's going to differ if there's some sort of phylogenetic signature on whether and by how much some lizards uh, are prone to thermoregulate or others, right? There may be lineage-specific effects. There may be regional effects. So there's, prob- there's probably a lot going on that's going to impact the absolute magnitude of that rate difference. I,
0: I hear all of your nuance there, but I'm still really impressed. I mean, three and a half times slower is is pretty amazing.
2: It's a lot, and it's ten times slower or even slower than that for other comparisons, up to an order of magnitude in some cases.
1: So in, in personal experience with anoles and it's not very much I had one graduate student do her dissertation on the the brown anoles that are absolutely everywhere in Florida but one of the things that's intrigued me about them probably not surprisingly given my interest in invasive non-native species in general is that some of the anoles are really broadly distributed you know naturally versus not and that's going to mean that their exposure to you know, the thermal diversity is much more than others. Is there any evidence, has there been any any effort to ask about fundamental differences in those broadly distributed taxa relative to others? I mean, in one way, you know, you can get structures of populations, even though we call them species, the northern distribution of a species can be very different thermally than the southern. So maybe it doesn't really wash out at the species level. But But what do you know about that? Have you studied Compared many of these broadly distributed to the more narrowly distributed species.
2: I can think of plenty of amazing studies, sort of picking apart those broadly distributed species. So, for example, Shane campbell staten has some really elegant geographic work on Anolis carolinensis, a very widespread, semi-temperate species of anole. It's interesting you mention Anolis sagrii, though, because I have thought about what you're thinking about, and in a slightly different context. So, I don't know if you know this. USF is in Tampa, right? Yeah. Well, I don't know about Tampa, but down in Miami, you can get three different trunk-ground lizards from three different islands.
1: <laughs> They're not quite here yet, but there's quite a few lizards available.
2: <laughs> well, there and you go. Yeah, yeah. So you've got Anolis sagrii, which is ancestrally from Cuba and uh, the Bahamas, and that invaded a long time ago. I believe the second invader was Anolis cristatellus. This is a brown lizard trunk round anole from Puerto Rico. And then I do believe that the most recent would have been Anolis cybodes, a Dominican species of trunk-ground anole. Now, Cristatellus sagrii and cybodes are all uh, trunk-ground lizards, relatively well-known for being fairly good thermal regulators. Similar heat tolerances, kind of similar in many dimensions. The one that's really taken off and spread across the U.S. is Anolis cybodes. Anolis Cybotes seems to be restricted to a couple of city blocks, for example, in Miami. And Chrysoteles is a bit more wide-ranging, but certainly hasn't achieved the success of Enola Sagriae. From On thermal grounds, I really, obviously this is very ripe for deeper experimental exploration, but just as a starting point, I think they're pretty darn similar. And for me, it's actually quite incredible that those other species haven't spread. And I wonder if it's less to do with any maybe potential physiological differences than just purely incumbency effects, right? Because they just occupy similar niches structurally. Sagrii is a very aggressive species. Uh, maybe it outcompetes the others. And any physiological divergence we might have observed or could have observed is being limited because Sagrii is precluding potentially the expansion of Chrysoteles and Cybodes.
0: Well, I think we've maybe reached a good ending point. We do ask one final question of all of our guests, and uh, that is, is there anything we haven't asked you about that you would like to talk about or anything else you'd like to say? (laughs) Give me a second. (laughs) It doesn't get broader than that.
2: (laughs) I think one of the most important features of evolutionary physiology is that by definition it's highly complex, right? We cannot really understand the physiology of organisms without also understanding their behavior, their morphology, the sort of physical constraints that dictate, you know, the adaptive landscape itself, right? And the environment and how organisms interact with that environment. It's inherently beautifully complicated and noisy. And that is sort of why we're drawn to it because It's inherently noisy and messy. And I personally find great pleasure in sort of teasing that apart and trying to put it back together again. But by definition, it also means that physiological research becomes very challenging because in order to distill any salient signal, we almost have to, by design, try to erase all of the other variation that contributes to physiological patterns. But the challenge is when we do that. In putting things back together in a way that makes sense. And there's a really important George Bartholomew quote that is salient here. He says in this 1986 essay on natural history, after physiology has taken Humpty Dumpty apart, it is difficult, perhaps even unfashionable, to put him back together again.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Perhaps even unfashionable.
2: (laughs) Perhaps even unfashionable. What a mouthful. You know? And I think... The most exciting work or what excites me most about the work we're doing and work that i read are studies that sort of embrace that and sort of anticipate multi-dimensional connections and try to piece those together to determine the evolution of physiological patterns and i think that's something to keep in the back of our minds right and when designing our experiments and thinking about the future is the way that we do our science allowing us to put humpty dumpty back together again and I think it should be fashionable to do so.
0: <laughs> wow. Perfect place to end. That's great.
1: <laughs> Thank you, Martha. This is fantastic. We really enjoyed the conversation.
2: Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode if you like what you hear let us know via twitter facebook instagram or leave a review on apple podcasts and if you don't well we'd love to know that too all feedback is good feedback
1: we also wanted to give a shout out to one of our most dedicated patrons thanks to new science for your generosity and patronage it's patrons like you who keep the show growing
0: on the next episode we talk to dan nicholson about his new book everything flows toward a processual philosophy of biology In the chat, we dig into Dan's concerns about the widely used metaphor of living things as machines.
1: Thanks to Steve Lane, who manages the website, as well as Ruth Demery and Brad Van Paradin for producing the episode.
0: Thanks also to interns R.B. Smith, Jordan Greer, Kyle Smith, and Natasha Damright, and to Keating Shimeri for producing our awesome cover art.
1: Thanks to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida, the College of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana, and the National Science Foundation for support.
0: Music on the episode is from Poddington Bear and Tieran Costello.